Well, last week uh, I started a series on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For some of you who might not have heard out on the telephone land, uh, I went back to Malachi and showed that uh, we have to have our hearts turned to the fathers, and that part of that, as Elijah did when he called upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or their name, when he cursed the priests of Baal. It's to our Father in heaven, uh, our, far, our fathers the prophets, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also our physical children and their fathers. Three ways I see in which our hearts must be turned. Uh, the highest level, of course, to our Father in heaven. And as Isaiah 51 says, we are also in this end time, and it is an end time prophetic context where it says it in Isaiah 51, that we are to look to the hole whence we were digged. And then he says that that is Abraham and Sarah. So we are to look back to our roots, where we came from. And apparently then, the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, particularly of Abraham, are very, very important to the lives of his people in the end time. So Abraham is one of the key figures in the Bible that we must look back to in this end time to see how we are to manage our lives, the things we are to do, and how we are to go about them. Very, very important lessons are given in the story about Abraham. We then went to Hebrews 11 and saw a quick summary there of some of the high points of Abraham's life. Um, but I want to go back to Genesis 11 and pick the story up there and get into more detail about this man Abraham. I believe that God wants us to consider the detail, not just the summary. Of course, those are truly important areas of his life that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. But God took a great deal of space back in the book of Genesis to explain all the life of Abraham, the things he went through. Now, the Bible obviously is an abbreviated story of history. Everything that happened in the lives of everyone is certainly not recorded in the Bible. And there are some very, very important people in the Bible story who were not given much ink. Very little is mentioned of their lives. Uh, Enoch might be a good example uh, of one. Uh, Noah, not a great deal, was spent on. And yet Abraham is given chapter after chapter after chapter uh, in Genesis, and then later on throughout the Bible, Abraham is mentioned quite frequently. So God gave him a lot of ink, if you will, a lot of explanation. And therefore, if that much is given, there must be something very important there for us to understand. Why give it that emphasis otherwise? So let's go to Genesis 11 and understand that after the flood, uh, all people spoke the same language. That may seem strange to us today because we live in a world where there are many, many different languages, and it would seem to us, since we grew up in this kind of world, that it has always been that way. But we, I hope, are learning that everything in history and everything that has transpired on this earth has to be seen sometimes from a different perspective than that which we have. 
that things have not always been the way that they are. Things were radically different in the past in many respects than they are today. And languages, or language, was one of those areas. Not only that, but all the people were gathered into one area of the world. Uh, after the flood, and, well, from the Garden of Eden on down, the races had not spread out all over the earth. And there was one language and one speech over the whole habit, uh, habited, inhabited part of the earth. So they decided to make a name for themselves, and they were going to build a tower that would reach into the heavens. And God did not want that to happen, so the way he changed it was very simple. He gave the different tribes of people different languages. They couldn't understand each other, and therefore suspected and didn't like each other, and immediately began moving to other parts of the earth. So simply by changing the languages, God was able to make people scatter and stay with people that spoke the same language they spoke. And that's how people came to go all over the earth. In, chapter, in verse 10 of chapter 11, he then gives the genealogy of Shem, because Abraham would come through the line of Shem, one of Noah's sons. We have today what are called the Semitic or Shemitic languages, of Western Europe and North America. Uh, they're named that because they are the languages that came through the line of Shem and are basically the Anglo-Saxon or white races of Western Europe, North America, uh, Australia, and the areas where those Semitic peoples went. I won't go through the whole history of this, but it's very simple to look in a phone book and find out where Israel is, whether you're in Western Europe or whether you are in the United States. There are names there that hearken back to biblical names, and they are quite common. You don't see that in other parts of the world. You go to one part of the world and Xing Li and Tao and Mo, is, is, you know, are the common names. You go to another continent and it's Mogambo or Mugambi or Mugambi or whatever. Uh, they're not Semitic peoples. They didn't come through Shem. They came through one of the other legs of the sons of, uh, of Noah. But he goes down and gives the genealogy here. This was important because through Abraham, later on in the line of Shem, would come Isaac and Jacob. And from Jacob would come the twelve tribes of Israel, one of which was Judah, through whom Christ would come. So Christ came through the Semitic uh, chain. There are those in Africa who say they can trace their lineage back to David uh, through DNA. Now that is perhaps possible. That does not mean that Africa is the main area of Israel. Uh, if you read the story of David and you read the story of his son Solomon, they spread it far and wide, and there is DNA from those two men probably all over the earth, if you were to check everyone. But that does not mean they were the main areas that Israel settled. And I think we'll see that as we go through this uh, story of Abraham and what God said would happen to the seed of Abraham. And then look at the world as we see it today, 
and understand how those blessings have been fulfilled, where they have been fulfilled, in what ways they have been fulfilled. We have an advantage. We don't just have to be reading this, let's say, uh, a thousand years before Christ and trying to figure out what would happen in the last days. We are in the last days. So we have the advantage of looking at the configuration of the earth today, comparing it with the Bible, and making determinations based on that. If we believe in the Bible, and that the Bible story is correct, then it should be easy to compare what the Bible says would happen in the last days and see indeed where that is. All right, so in this line then, verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And Sarai was barren. She had no child, verse 30. They don't, the Bible doesn't remark that about most women. It doesn't mention too many women in uh, Bible history. But a notation is made here before we even get into the story that she would not have children. She would be barren. God worked that out on purpose because he had a great purpose in mind. So Terah, Abram's father, uh, took his son and Lot, the son of Haram, his son's son, and they went uh, forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. Now let's pick up the story where God begins to directly deal with Abraham. Now remember, we're going back here not just as a matter of history, to study genealogy or where we might have come from. Now, that is part of the story, certainly, and it is an important part of it. But I want our focus to be more on the life of Abraham, where he was, what he did, how he lived, and therefore how we should be living in the land that God has given us. Now, there's an important lesson right at the very beginning of the story. Now the Eternal had said to Abram, Genesis 12, verse 1, Get you out of your country, and from your kindred, and from your father's house, unto a land that I will show you. So when God first addresses this man, who had grown up and not had that kind of contact with God, the first thing he said was, Go away from your Father, go away from your friends, go away from your relatives, go away from your land, your father's house, and everything that you hold dear. And people were not in the kind of society we're in in America today, where people are traveling all over the states. Most of you who have children probably have those children scattered across the United States, and some of them maybe even overseas. Now, that was not the case even 100 to 200 years ago in this country. Even in my life, most of the children of my grandparents live either in the same town or in towns not very far away from where the roots were. In fact, we often lived on the same land. My grandfather divided part of his farm off and gave some to one of my aunts, some to my mother, uh, small acreages, and later to my other aunt, another of my aunts, uh, and we lived on the same farm because that's the way it was. 
until people became so mobile in the last 50, 60, 70 years. Until that time, they stayed in the same area, with that, which was familiar. I grew up with my cousins, most of them. Now my children have cousins scattered everywhere. <laughs> to get together a cousin's reunion would require passports. Now I want to make a point here. Let's go back to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. When Christ came to this earth, he addressed the disciples, later to become apostles. And here in Matthew 19, Christ is saying that it's very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because rich men tend to trust in their riches and not look to God. God has called basically poor people into his church in this great calling that he has made in the end time. Very few mighty, very few noble, very few rich. Uh, it is the poor who need something who began to look to God. Verse 27, Then answered Peter and said to him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed you. Remember how it was? When Christ got ready to call his disciples, he went down to the seashore, and there were a lot of fishermen down there, and he just picked out certain ones. He went to a tax collector, picked him out. Just average Joe Blows, maybe below average, and said, Come and follow me. And they dropped their nets right where they were and went and followed him. Total change in their lives. Nothing was ever the same again. Was it traumatic? I suspect that it was. What about when Elijah came into contact with Elisha and said, come and follow me? Elisha was at that time plowing with oxen. He immediately sacrificed his oxen, his means of making a living, gave them to the people to eat. He couldn't go back. In other words, he burned his bridges or sacrificed his oxen and went and followed Elijah. So what God told Abraham to do would become an important thing in the future with people to whom, with whom God was working. He's establishing a pattern back here with Abram. Verse 27, Peter had said, We've forsaken all and followed you. And Emmanuel said to them, Truly I say to you, that you which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now this is said in the exact context of people who had willingly given up everything that they had and followed him. Is that not interesting? He said, your reward in the kingdom of God is tied into and is part of the fact that you were willing to give up everything you had and come and follow him. Notice verse 29, And every one that is forsaken houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake, 
shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So what he established back here with Abram is carried forward in the ministry of Christ with his disciples who are to become apostles who will be kings of the tribes of Israel in the future. They have even leapfrogged over Reuben and Issachar and Gad and Asher and Joseph, the original fathers of those tribes. Those men will not be the heads of even their own tribes in the world tomorrow, but the twelve apostles of the New Testament will be. Isn't that interesting? Because they were willing to do the same thing that God instructed Abram to do. Let's see this in Mark 10. It's the same account, but it adds some detail. Mark 10. Let's see, I want to pick it up in verse 28. Then Peter began to say, again after the same story about the rich man entering the kingdom, Peter began to say to him, We have left all and have followed you. He was saying, Well, you know, we weren't rich men, but we did leave everything we had and we followed you. And Emmanuel answered and said, Truly I say to you, there is no man that has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, for his sake and the work that he would have to do is added. The gospels wasn't in the Matthew account. I might add, too, that, well, let's wait a moment for that. Verse 30, but he shall receive an hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come, eternal life. So Mark adds that Christ didn't say just in the kingdom of God, but in this life also. Is it not interesting that we can go to, or could, maybe we still can, to some degree or another at least, before the church scattered at least, you could go to almost any city in the land and walk into a church of God place, and you would have brothers and sisters there who thought like you, acted like you, welcomed you, invited you into their homes just because you were part of the church of God. They didn't know you, they didn't know where you came from, didn't know your family, didn't have any business ties with you. You just walked in the door, and suddenly you were among friends, brothers, sisters, and could go to their land and to their home. I personally have been invited into homes in other continents of people I did not even know, except they knew I came from the Church of God whether it was Australia or Europe or Africa, I got invited in. didn't happen in Asia because God didn't have any people in the land of Israel where I went. But had there been a congregation in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, they would have been the same way. There just never was one there. Interesting. I wonder why. Why wouldn't God establish at least a congregation of his people in Jerusalem. He did in New Zealand. He did in Kuala Lumpur. He did in Thailand. He did all over the world. Every nation. 
except Israel. I wonder if there's a message there somewhere. Anyway, where was I here in Mark? Or wife in both Matthew 19 and in Mark 10 apparently is not in the original Greek. So you may not have to give up your wife for his sake. On the other hand, 1 Corinthians 7 even includes that. Because Paul made a judgment there which God saw fit to put in the Bible and to canonize it as part of his word, the thought that if God called either the husband or the wife into the church and did not call their mate, that if that mate gave you a hassle and impeded you from obeying God, God would take that responsibility upon himself and that you could separate from them if they were not pleased to dwell with you, and you know them by their fruits. If they give you a hassle about the feast, about the Sabbath, about tithing, about uh, any of the things that God says to do, and will not let you worship God in peace, God says you have the absolute right given by him to separate from them, and that you are not bound to them, and the context shows that you can actually even marry again only in the church. You cannot go into a situation like that that you came out of again. God offers that one opportunity to get out of that divided marriage, spiritually divided marriage, and make it right. Because it wasn't you who did the calling. He called you and may not have called your mate. And as a result, he has made op opportunity for you to live and worship him in peace. So in some cases, people might have been married 10, 15, 20, 30 years. One called into the church, the other not. And the mate that was not called made life a living hell for the one who was called. And God said, we are not called to war, but to peace. And therefore could separate, and that would be a God-sanctioned separation and not bound. Some people say, well, that means they just have to live alone. No, the Scripture says you are not under bondage. That is, you are not then bound. If you are unbound, you are free. And if you are free, you can marry. He makes it very, very clear. So God is telling the end-time church, even as he told the early New Testament church, and put it in the gospel for all to read for all ages, that we must be willing to give up everything that we hold dear in order to come and follow him. Now, was it just for the apostles in that day? Now, some of them traveled a lot. James apparently went into Asia. Uh, Paul went all over the Mediterranean and perhaps over here and all over the world. Some of them had wives. Peter did. He said he could lead about a wife. But they still left their homes and did a lot of traveling. Traveling on the road is not a great deal of fun after a while. When you're sitting at home, it sounds romantic. 
But when you're marooned somewhere in a snowstorm, it isn't romantic at all. Now, what does he say of the end-time church? He says in the book of Haggai that a temple has to be built and that people would be stirred to come to build that temple. In other words, they'll have to leave their homes, their families, their lands, and come and work in that temple. Haggai doesn't say they'll come from afar, but Zechariah 6 does. So they will come from afar to build in the temple of God. Their prophecies in Isaiah and others say they'll come from far away, from the north, the east, the south, the west. But God will gather them from all corners of the earth to come and work in his temple. So, the first big lesson in the life of Abram is also a big lesson in the lives of God's end-time people. Inescapable. We have a work to do here at the end time. The temple has to be built. Jerusalem has to be built. I won't go into all those prophecies again right at the moment, but we've been through them recently. Verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Now this was something he was telling Abram. He had not yet made a covenant with Abram, but he was telling him what he was going to do with him. First he says, leave everything dear to you, but I'm going to bless you. And I will bless them that bless you, and curse him that curses you, and in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. His descendants, those who came out of Abraham, and we'll see that it was by promise through Isaac, not Ishmael, and Jacob, that all families of the earth would be blessed. Now look around today at the earth. What people, what nation does the entire earth look to? In what nation here in the end time? do we see blessing on those who work at having a good relationship with? And where do you see nations that are cursed by a nation whom they curse? Would this be Tahiti? Or could it be Poland? Or Russia? Do you think that the nations of the earth look to Russia as a land that blessed them? Let's go to Revelation 18. Revelation 18. Speaking of Babylon, the end, for all nations, in verse 3, have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Where is the marketplace of the world that everyone is blessed by selling their stuff to? We made Japan a very rich nation. Then we made Taiwan a very rich nation. Then we made China a very rich nation. And we have made the economies of South America and Europe 
better. And even Africa, which is a have-not continent, basically, has had a great deal, and much of what little blessing, if you will, that they have had has come mostly from Europe and the United States, mostly from Israel. All right, let's tie this together by going back to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Now let's, let's go back to 48. We went to this recently where we showed that Ephraim was the younger son and yet would become greater than the older son. England was the older son in the end time, but Ephraim, or the younger son, the United States, has far eclipsed anything that Great Britain ever did. And it appears very clearly now that the United States is Ephraim and England is Manasseh. But notice verse 21, And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. And Jacob called to his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. So these prophecies that were made back here through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were made for the last days. So we should be able to read Genesis 49 and look around the earth and identify where these people are based on what happened. Let's go down to verse 22. Ephraim and Manasseh both came from Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. A well-watered land, a fruitful land. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. Now isn't it true that the world wars and a lot of ammunition even yet today, verbally and emotionally, is aimed at where? Right here. We have been a nation that has blessed them and built up their economies and that they have received great fortune from, and yet we've come to a point where they're all shooting at us. And indeed we can show, as I did in the Babylon, Babylon series, that we will eventually be destroyed of them. But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. We've been in world wars and it looked like we could lose. But it didn't happen that way. Normandy and some of those things where the weather intervened, or God directly intervened, saved our heights, because God abode with us, and we were made strong by him. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Who is the stone and the shepherd? Christ. And he came out of Israel. Even by the God of your Father, who shall help you, and by the Almighty, who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Now he's including Ephraim and Manasseh here in speaking of Joseph. And if you look at the earth today, 
How has the earth been blessed? Through the United Kingdom before and by America today in the last days. So I think it is fairly easily established that Western Europe and the United States are in the line of Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and that the lands of the earth have been blessed by the relationship with us, or Jeremiah calls in chapter 51, I think it is, this great Babylon we live in today, the hammer of the whole earth. So they've either, either been blessed by us, or if they get crossways with us, they've been hammered by us. So they've been blessed or cursed based on their relationship with us, as he says right here in Genesis 12, verse 3. What other nation can hammer any other nation on earth? This is the only one. All right, so Abram departed as the Eternal had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. He's already getting to be up in the years, 75 years old. Of course, he lived 175. So he was, I guess, in those terms, relatively young. Even though if we're 75, we feel like we're pretty old. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that had gotten, that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan, they came. So God told them to go out and look for a city. Now let's keep our thumb there and go back for a moment to Hebrews and look at the summary account again. There's a couple of points I want to make here I didn't make last week now that we're getting into specifics. Uh, Hebrews 11 and let's begin in verse 8. By faith Abraham, he was still Abram at the time, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. So God told him to leave where he was and go to a land that would become his inheritance. Now, where does an inheritance go? It goes to your children, doesn't it? His inheritance went, and we'll see that the covenant was made, not with Ishmael, but with Isaac, and with Jacob then, and with Joseph and we've seen that those prophecies about those lands would happen in the latter days. So the inheritance that is spoken of here is the inheritance of today. That the lands where we would find Israel today were the lands that God promised to Abraham. So where is the promised land? We're living in it. We're living in the promised land. It cannot be any other way. Because God promised his people, he promised Abraham, that the land he went into would be the land that his children would inherit. How many children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the twelve sons of Jacob, how many of them live in the Middle East? How many fingers and toes do you have? You can almost count them by comparison. Where are those peoples today? Western Europe, the United States and Canada, and a few scattered through Australia, not very many there. New Zealand and South Africa, not very many in those places either by comparison. But he said they would number as the sands of the sea. 
and that they would be in the land promised to Abraham. From that, I could only conclude that the Middle East must not have been the land promised to Abraham. Do you follow that? Can't be. Or the sons of Jacob would be there today. And they aren't. That land, most of it, is inhabited by Arabs, sons of Ishmael. There are a few Jews, many of whom are not Jews at all, but Edomites, and a tiny land called Israel, which is not a fruitful bough. It is primarily a very desert land. Israel is not there. I think it's important that we establish where Abraham was, and we establish where the promised land is. We are as the sands of the sea now, compared to what Abraham was when he and Sarah had no children. And this is where we are. He was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance. Where did he go? We just read that he got out, up out of Haran and went to the land of Canaan. Where is the land of Canaan? He went into the land that was promised to him and to his seed. The land of Canaan must be somewhere in the land where Abraham's descendants are living today. I find it interesting that if you walk out of this building and look north, you will see the Canaan Mountains, and you will see Mount Canaan as you go around the end of the range in the land of Ephraim today, near a place called Zion. Is that coincidental, or is it not? Maybe Abraham was in America when this promise was given. Anyway, he went into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obey. He just got up and did what God said. He didn't hem and haw around. He didn't say, well, I want to wait. Can you give me another ten years here? Can you give me another five years here with my family and then I'll go? He didn't bargain with God. Now, there was a time later in his life that he bargained with God almost to the point that you'd begin to fear to bargain with God anymore, as we shall see. But about this, he didn't. He just got up and left. When it became clear to him God wanted him to go somewhere else, he just got up and did it. How can he be called the father of the faithful? He believed God. And he did what God said, with no equivocation. Now Christ told those people that any man who would leave lands, homes, brethren, sisters, family, for his sake, not just because they wanted to get away from all that stuff, <laughs> as some people do today, but for his sake and for the gospel's sake they would receive brothers and sisters and lands and homes and this time as well as everlasting life. We have to be willing. And he went out not knowing where he went. What an incredible, huge lesson that is. 
How many people are willing to pick up their roots and move away from everything dear to them, the area of the land that they choose to live in, and their homes, their families, and do something because God says so. Not because IBM wants to transfer them, but because God says so. Now, I was told by a minister in the greater churches of God that when we came out here, it was okay to move out here if we thought that this was a nice place <laughs> and that this is something we would desire to do on our own because we could raise chickens here in gardens. It was okay to do it because we thought it was a favorable place to be. But then he said, but if you're doing it because you think God wants you to, I cannot agree with it. Now, do we see God in our lives? It was the title of the first sermon given by John Reitenbaugh in Church of the Great God when it began. Now, that wasn't just for that group. That sermon could echo through the ages. If any of us are called of God, we should be able to see God in our lives. And anything that is important that we do, we should feel that it was something God would want us to do. Otherwise, we shouldn't do it. Do we question everything we do and say, would God want me to do this? Or do we not? Now, I think that if we find instruction in the Scripture that says we should do certain things because God says so, then that's exactly what we ought to do. Not just because it was a nice place to raise a garden. Now, my answer might have been in part, this isn't a very nice place to raise a garden. It isn't a very nice place to raise chickens. It isn't a very nice place to be right now, today. Now, it's, in my opinion, a lot better than New York City or L.A. or Seattle or Detroit. But if you're going to be an Amish, you ought to be in Ohio, where there's rain and green and it's easy to grow a garden. I mean, if that's what you're looking for and that was your prime motivation, this was the wrong place to go. But if you find scriptures that say, leave the cities and go out into the wilderness and I'll deliver you there, and to go into the mountains, the wilderness, and the desert to get away from Babylon, then I think God is saying, do that. And thankfully, when you saw those scriptures, those of you who are here responded and did just that. And I think you are going to be blessed immeasurably for it when the time comes. And I don't think that time is far off. 
But at the same time, I feel we've already been blessed here. We have friends and neighbors here that we can love and be a part of and build, hopefully, a godly-type community. Now, we're carnal, and we have our rough edges, and it takes time to work and to grow and to overcome. But I think things are a lot more peaceful here, and we're working together better and know each other better and can get along a whole lot better than when we first got here. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> there have been some rough spots. They've had to be worked out. But if we continually go to God and we ask for help, those things get worked out. And we can learn to live together in peace and happiness. That's something families have to do, is it not? They say that the family arguments begin on Thanksgiving and end up in homicide at Christmas <laughs> in the families of this world. You know, they put the fire under the pot when they get together at Thanksgiving. And it simmers and begins to boil by Christmas time. People who are of the same family don't get along as well over time as we, with the Spirit of God, can grow and come to do. Yes, I grew up on a farm with my cousins and my aunts and my uncles, most of them nearby. Was it always peaceful? Not on your life. Sometimes it was for a short while. But they had grievances and attitudes that went all the way back to their childhoods, and they got aired regularly when the family got together. Now, there was a semblance of peace, but there were always undercurrents. And sometimes the undercurrents bubbled out. That's just the way it is. But hopefully we're getting rid of those undercurrents, and we're learning to live together in peace. And it can only happen through the Spirit of God. Otherwise, as many backgrounds and different places and histories and everything as we have, this would be impossible. But when you have a common goal, a common way of looking at things, you can work it out. It's not always easy, but it can be done. Anyway, he didn't know where he went. When God first began to reveal an understanding that the southwest area here was where he would begin to gather his people. I had to come out here and look around, and he didn't say exactly where he wanted us to be. <laughs> it's just that somewhere out there toward the Four Corners area around Zion somewhere. And I made several trips not knowing what I was looking for scratching my head and going back home kind of frustrated, not knowing exactly what to look for or exactly where to look for it. The door slammed everywhere because it was unaffordable or for whatever reason could not work. When you moved to Kanab, some of you, when you began to understand some of these scriptures, you still didn't know the land that you would light on. Some of you rented homes in Canab and St. George. You didn't know where to move. And you asked me, and I said, I don't know. Somewhere near here. <laughs> Somewhere near here. 
And when it opened up, it opened up in such a way that you really couldn't turn it down. Even the numbers that I had in my head that I would try to negotiate for, the fellow undercut before I even asked for that. On interest rate, size of payment, uh, cost per acre, interest, everything was lower than I had hoped for or was going to try to negotiate. And when he offered me those numbers, down payment, 5000 unbelievable. There was no way to say no. There was no way. It's obvious. God had just opened it up and virtually given it to us. I just got out the checkbook and wrote a check for 5000 That's it. We're doing this. God had opened a door. How many other properties had I looked at that required 100000 down or 200000 down and 10% interest and on and on and on the story went and I just walk away because obviously God hadn't opened the door there. Now I know that only those who agree with what we are doing will agree with what I just said. Others will say, well, time and chance. It just opened that way. You can't prove God did it. Well, I can see God in our lives, brethren, and I had been through enough that I could see that this was an open door. Now, had I come out in the general area and had offers on every hand and just, oh, I don't know which one to turn down, which one to accept, I couldn't have known. But after I got so many doors slammed in my face and one just swung wide open, it was so obvious to me that God had to open or it couldn't have been there. And when you heard the story, you didn't equivocate. Now I'm giving this partially as our short, brief history as well as that of Abraham because I believe that you are the children and the seed of Abraham. And I believe that your hearts are already being turned, perhaps without you even realizing it, to react and act as Abraham did. Because that's what you did. You came out not knowing where you were going. And God opened the door for you. He didn't know where he went. That took some faith. So did it for you. He didn't walk by sight. God didn't open this thing up and give us a great big ranch somewhere and then say, the place is prepared, go there. Your houses are ready, the heat's on, the water's running, move out. You know, there'd probably been a lot more people would have come had you offered them that. But you weren't offered that. God works in patterns. Did Christ offer that to the apostles, the disciples? Did he say, I have this great, wonderful place prepared for you. Drop your nets. I'm going to take you over there. No. He just said, come follow me. They dropped their nets and went after him. Same pattern as with Abraham and as in the end time. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise. He went through the land of promise, or the promised land. 
as in a strange country. Wasn't familiar with it. Hadn't been there before. He'd grown up in Haran. Dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So he says here that Isaac and Jacob were promised the same land that he was promised. Doesn't say Ishmael was. In fact, when we get to Ishmael, when it tells the story of Hagar, it doesn't promise land. It just says he'll become a great nation. Doesn't say where he'd be. Where are the Arabs today? They're in the Middle East. Where are the land of where are the seed of Israel? The great preponderance of them, the greatest population of them is in this country, the United States of America today. So it has to be the land of promise, if that's where God's people are today. His people Israel, physically speaking, and spiritually, most of the church is in this nation today. So both the physical and the spiritual promises are this land we live in. So when people talk about the promised land, they're not talking about the land of Israel. I mean, the nation in Palestine, the Middle East. They think they are. But I think this absolutely proves where Abraham was because this is where his seed are today, the land of promise, or the promised land. And it said that he was walking in the promised land, and that his seed would have it. Where are we? How many ways am I going to say this here before I move on? But I think we need to actually make the point based on the reality of Genesis 49.1, because it says these would be what would happen in the latter days, that his people would walk in the land that he was promised, and he was walking on it at that time. Could it be any clearer? For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now that's a very interesting statement in itself. He looked for a city. Now the city wasn't there yet. He took Isaac to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. There was no one there. When he went between Bethel and what was the other city there? Into the land of Canaan, there was no city there. But, it says, the builder and maker of the foundations of that city is God. God had established the place that Jerusalem would be built. Now, God is a God of pattern. So let's go back to Revelation 21 for a moment. Revelation 21. Now this is speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven, the spiritual city to come when Christ and his Father moved to this earth at the beginning of the millennium. 
But notice in verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So, the city of God has 12 foundations. Therefore, since God works in patterns, the physical city that he established on this earth would also have 12 foundations, I believe. And interestingly enough, we live in the area of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And it is a geological staircase. And from the bottom of the Grand Canyon, the River of Strife, which is the Colorado, up to the top of Zion and Cedar Mountain, and this area in general, there are 12 geological staircases or foundations. Is that by happenstance? Why wasn't it 9 or 11 or 43? Why is it 12? Grace said in Song of Songs 2, I believe it is, I will meet you in the springtime when the turtle dove begins to sing in the secret places of the stairs. We have a geological staircase here. It has 12 foundations. Let's go down to verse 16. And the city lies four square. It's a city that lies four square. Now, I believe that there is a candidate for the original city which God built and laid the foundations geologically for that also has a geological formation that is roughly, in geological terms, square. And if you pan down on it from Google Earth, you will see virtually a square city or land formation where a city may have been built. It looks square from above. Isn't that interesting? That God is going to make the city from the heavens come down four square and that perhaps the original site of Jerusalem was a geological formation that is four square. Not only that, but the square on the west side has a formation that even though it's basically square looking, is wing shaped like the two wings of a great eagle. Where does coincidence stop? Now it says there in Genesis 12 that God laid the foundation of the city. If America is the promised land where Abraham walked, then he had to have walked on a Mount Moriah here and a Mount Zion here not there. If we can show, and it's easy to do so, that Israel is today primarily in this land, then we have to be in the promised land. We can't be anywhere else. Now, where was I reading that? Oh, I was back in I was back in Hebrews, wasn't I? Let me go back there. Got sidetracked a little bit. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. 
So, what he was then looking for, you see, this was a long time before Revelation 21 was written. It was a long time before the measurements of the heavenly Jerusalem would be given. But the original Jerusalem, also in geological terms, is a heaved up area. Heaved up is where heavenly comes from. Heaved up by geological forces, volcanoes in fact. And it is essentially square and has 12 foundations. I think that we shall see more and more evidence that this is the case. Now let's go back to Genesis 12. They came into the land of Canaan in verse 5. They went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. In other words, they set out to do it, and they did it. So the land of Canaan is where God wanted him to go. But he didn't know where the city was at that point. And Abram passed through the land, under the place of Sychem, under the plain of Morah, or Oak of Morah. Morah means a teacher. And the Canaanite was then in the land. So it was a strange land with a strange people in it. Canaanites were not Israelites. They were heathen peoples. They were Gentiles. And Abram passed through that land. Verse 7, And the Eternal appeared to Abram and said, Unto your seed will I give this land. Now that echoes what I've already made quite a point of here. The land that he passed through, Canaan, would be the land that God would give to his seed. Where is the land where the seed of Abraham lives today? They do not live in the Middle East. Almost none of them. Those Jews there are mostly Edomites, secular Jews who are not religious. They say they are Jews but are not. And that's the only tribe that's there. And there aren't many of them. There are by far, by far, more Jews in New York, Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, and other places in America than there are in that nation called Israel over there today. Most of Judah is in Western Europe and America. It's where most of the Jews are and scattered then through Eastern Europe as well, but primarily within the lands of Israel. They're scattered throughout the other nations of Israel. So where he was, he said, I will give this land, not some other land. If he had been in the Middle East, and God said, I will give you this land, Abraham's seed would be today there. Right? Is there any other logical conclusion? But if he was standing on the land of Canaan and God said, I will give this to your seed, all we have to do is look around and find out where that seed is today and which nation has blessed or cursed people, depending on the situation, which the whole world revolves around. Like it or not, it's America. That is the reality of the end time. So it has to be the reality and the fulfillment of this scripture. 
Okay. And there builded he an altar to the Eternal who appeared to him. So he built an altar in the land of promise, the promised land, America. And he removed from there into a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Eternal and called upon the name of the Eternal. And I wonder if that was not probably the site that would eventually become Jerusalem in the land of Canaan, which is part of the promised land of America today. And Abram journeyed going on still toward the south, verse 9, and there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. So the land where God had directed him to go and to look for a place to live uh, was beset by a famine, so he went down into Egypt. Of course, if this is the cradle of civilization and is the beginning of the promised land, and this is where Shem, Ham, and Japheth lived and were later scattered when God confounded their languages, then Egypt would have been here as well, somewhere in the neighborhood, because all the nations of the earth were. So it's not a problem that he went into an Egypt here before Egypt was transferred over there. Now, I find it very interesting that a dream I had in April, actually it was Passover day, of 1996 was a map of the Middle East and of the American Southwest. And the perception was that they were a mirror image of each other. The one was a mirror of the other. And as we began to look into it, we began to find incredible similarities in the topography, the colors of the rock, Petra, and Zion, in the climate, in the locations, everything fit. I won't go through all that at the moment, but that came in on Passover 12 years ago. I find that to be an interesting number in that 12 is the, nine, is the number of organized beginnings. And God saw fit to give that information on Passover 12 years ago. Makes me wonder if he has some organization that he plans on doing shortly. I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to predict that, but it's just an interesting thing since we're coming up on 12 years since that information was imparted, and we'll see if God has something he is going to begin to do at that time. I don't know. I couldn't say that what we've done here really is much of an organized beginning. <laughs> it's kind of a hodgepodge bunch of people who came together to begin to prepare something. I believe we've been a preparation crew. But maybe God will begin to do something with this preparation crew and add to it. Now, if God, at some point, and I'm not saying it'll happen this spring, but I'm saying at some point, begins to gather his church to this general area, then I think you would have to say that this is the place we're speaking of. It is part of the promised land. So Egypt would have been near here. It is interesting if you go on the Internet, and I don't know that it can be proved because the government has shut down that area of the Grand Canyon, but there is a great deal of information available that there is a city back in the wall of the Grand Canyon 
that goes back for miles. And it has Egyptian architecture there. And it is ancient and has been there for a long, long time. And it makes me wonder if the ancient Egyptians built that and later then went to what is now called Egypt. Abandoned this. It apparently was discovered some years back and now that area of the Grand Canyon is sealed off and you cannot go there by the United States government. Does somebody know something? And are they trying to hide something? Now, if it was rumored that there was something like that there and it was open so that it could be inspected to find out, I would not be so suspicious. But when they close it down and won't let anyone go there, it makes me suspicious that they're hiding something. Now, you can go anywhere else in the Grand Canyon. You can climb anything you want and fall off anything you want. You can't go there. Now, you can go and do a lot of climbing and trail riding in Zion National Park but there's a section of it that is closed. You cannot go there legally. What? Why is this canyon any different than that canyon? If you can go in this one, why can't you go in that one? Unless there's something there that they don't want you to see. Well, if you're an American citizen and it's your park, shouldn't you be able to see it all? This canyon right over here by the barracks that we sometimes four-wheel over to. There are notices if you read some of the maps that you're not supposed to go down into that canyon. It is closed. There are petroglyphs in there. And I wonder if there's not something somewhere in that canyon I haven't explored to find out. It's closed, you know. But there's something there they apparently don't want you to see. No, when you have a whole big area that's open and there's one part that's closed, it makes me wonder why. Was the original Egypt here? Maybe it was. Maybe all the lands were here. Okay, so we went on still toward the south. and was a famine. He went into Egypt to sojourn there. Bad famine. Verse 11, And it came to pass, when he has come near to enter into Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Behold, now I know that you are a good-looking woman. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see you, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they'll save you alive. He said, You're much too pretty for me to take in there, and they cost me my life. She was only 65 at the time. She hadn't taken on the prune look yet, apparently, at 65. She's going to live a lot longer than that. At 65 today, we're pretty well all stooped and pruned out. But at 65, she was still a handsome woman. If you can say handsome about a woman. Beautiful girl. Say, I pray you, you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and my soul shall live because of you. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld a woman that she was... Good looking. 
The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh apparently had a taste for eclectic and good-looking women, so he had scouts. Anybody that saw an exceptionally good-looking woman was to report to Pharaoh because he might want her and they might receive a gold star or something for it. So she was taken to Pharaoh's house, and he entreated Abram well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses, asses and camels. So because she was so good looking and, she, and Pharaoh felt that was his sister, he gave him all kinds of gifts. Oh, to bring me such a beautiful woman, I'll give you gifts. And then all of a sudden, plague started coming on Pharaoh's house. The Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's, Sarai, Abram's wife. Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you lie to me and bring all... I gave you gifts and everything, and then I start getting plagues because you lied to me. Now, it was a half lie because she was his half-sister and his wife. There's nothing in the context that says Abraham was converted at this point. He's still named Abram. Why did you say, she's my sister, so I might have taken her to me to wife? Now therefore, behold your wife, take her and go your way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Now, it is very possible that if he had said, this is my wife, Pharaoh would have had him killed. Abram Abraham was not a dumb man, and he had a really good-looking wife. And men have been known to kill for good-looking women. And he knew that. Now, his half-truth, or half-lie, however you want to put it, could have saved his life. Now, notice that God backed him up and sent plagues on Pharaoh's house, and that's the reason he turned her loose. If the plagues hadn't come, and God had not backed up what Abram had said, he might well indeed have died when Pharaoh found out that it was his wife. Remember the time when David thought he was going to die, and he put his hat on crooked and crossed his eyes and slobbered down his chest and acted like he was a madman? so that they wouldn't kill him. Because a lot of Gentiles, and even our Native American Indians here, didn't like to kill crazy people because they were afraid the spirit of the crazy people would then come back on them. So if you're crazy, you weren't worth killing. In fact, they were scared to kill you. Now, did what David do constitute a lie? In a way, it did. He certainly wasn't a madman, but he was acting like one. Was that kind of subterfuge, would that have been interpreted by God as a lie? I'm not so sure it would have. He wasn't defrauding anyone. He wasn't hurting anyone. In fact, he was helping those people keep from committing murder, wasn't he? By acting crazy. He wasn't crazy, so in one sense, it's a lie. But it was not a false witness that would hurt anyone. 
I think we have to grasp that principle. It is not always wrong not to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, except unless you have sworn not to in court. But a lot of people do anyway afterwards. Did Christ always tell the whole truth? No, he did not. He would turn it around. Well, you say I am. Or he would slip away. He would use subterfuge to hide from people who would try to kill him. So is what Abram did here wrong? I guess there's a question mark in my mind about that. She was his wife, and yet she was his sister as well, or at least his half-sister. So he didn't really tell a lie entirely, and yet he preserved Pharaoh in part from killing him, committing murder, and he didn't defraud Pharaoh in that sense, except that he gave a misconception that caused Pharaoh a lot of trouble from God. So I don't know, I suppose the jury is still out on that to some degree. The Bible itself does not comment on it one way or another, does it? There's no editorial remark here. Now, when David killed Uriah and married Bathsheba, God commented on it. Very clearly, he commented on it. On this one, he makes no comment at all. Abram was, at this point, unconverted. Maybe it's something he shouldn't quite have done, but God does not come down hard on him. If this, if this was a wrong thing in God's eyes, it wasn't very wrong. And he did back Abram in it by sending the plagues. Point for us. Wouldn't it be good to be close enough to God so that when you entered into a questionable circumstance where you had to make a judgment on what to say and how to say it, that you're close enough to God that even if you do it a little bit wrongly, he's going to back you anyway. Blessed is that man to whom God will not impute sin. Can't be that time already. I thought with this we could just breeze right on through, but apparently we can't because I talk too much. But nevertheless, here was someone that God was working with. And what he did may be questionable. But he was close enough to God, and God had put his hand on him to the point that the decision he made, God backed. And I would like for all of us to be in that kind of relationship with God. Because it isn't always easy to know exactly what to do, is it? Everything is not cut and dried. It's not always easy to make a judgment. Wise judgments, wisdom are hard to come by and need to come from God. And sometimes we toy with it, don't we? Well, should I do this or should I do that? Should I say this? Should I say that? How should I approach this person? How can I win them as a brother? Or do I really want to get them? What's my attitude? How should I approach them? Sometimes we have a real war in our mind. We might even ask somebody else, well, how would you go about this? I want to do the right thing. But it isn't always easy to know exactly what the right thing is. But wouldn't it be nice to be able to go to God and say, I'm your chosen one, children, one of your chosen children. Help me 
and be with me, even though I'm making a mistake here. I don't know exactly what to do. Bless it anyway. There's a whole chapter almost, well, it's not a whole chapter, but a good section here about what he did here. and did it again later. And God recorded it. And maybe there's a lesson there for us. To be close enough to God to know that he's going to back our play, whatever it might be and whatever decision we make. Husbands have to make decisions sometimes, some direction of family and focus of family. Wives don't always agree, do they? Sometimes it's very difficult. A wife is there to back her husband's play. As long as it's not clearly wrong, then she has to obey God rather than man. But she has to give him the benefit of the doubt and go his way when there is a question. That's the way God set it up. And he backed Abraham, too. So let's stop then for sake of time and pick it up in chapter 13 next time.